All right. Good morning again. As we uh, begin a new brief series on Titus, we regularly, as we prepare these sermon series, we talk and we ask questions as to why. Have you ever sat and wondered why we begin a sermon on Titus? Why we worked on a sermon series on the parables? Why we worked on a sermon series through Hebrews, right? Valuable questions to ask why, and I think the same question should be asked here now, right? Why are we beginning a sermon series on Titus? As Jeff had said during the announcements, this is something we have been talking about for at least three years a, a sermon series on the church, on being the church, on living as the church, on acting as the church in society, in the family, in the body itself. What does that look like and what does that mean? That's why. That's why we're going into such a book now. Um, and it's an interesting time, right? Because we live in the American West. We live in Louisville, right? None of these are shockers to you. But within both of these contexts of Louisville specifically, to be zoomed in, but the American West generally, we live in an age and a time in which the world literally, or not literally, figuratively revolves around my phone tells me what's important to me. There are algorithms written by the almighty Google that tells you what you want to know, when you want to know it, right? The world in many ways appears to revolve around me. It revolves around you. It revolves around our values. For good or bad, it revolves in many ways, it appears around me. That's the American West. That's the society in which we've lived for many, many years. Louisville, to zoom in a little bit. All right, so we have this complex issue here about our selfishness and our self-centeredness and, and everything needing to be about me and serving me and doing this for me and me taking this and me getting this and me receiving this. To Louisville, which has a slightly different problem for those of you who have kind of navigated the reformed circles of Louisville for a while, we have another problem. That problem is, I'm going to use the word dogma instead of doctrine. We all value doctrine incredibly, and we're going to talk about that today. But we live in a city, we live in a church culture in which I think we have misplaced our God. And instead of our God being the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our God has become theological texts and tomes and books we can read that aren't necessarily the Bible. That's my observation. So Titus. Titus orients us around what is important as the church. For nine years, I've been part of this church. The Hargadins have been part of this church for nine years. We've seen many things come, many things go, many things stay the same. And this, I don't know, is one series that we've done yet on the church. So it's time, especially in the day and age we live in, in which all the arguments, all the debate, all the, arg the, the talk is becoming more and more and more about me and my view and what I hold correct, and standing in opposition to some brothers and sisters who hold a different view. I think 
Titus rightly orients that for us. So this morning, we're going to hop into Titus. You can turn to chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. All right? So we're, we're only doing the greeting. I don't know how this is going to turn out. Bear with me if it's terrible. But the greetings are always interesting to examine. So please be gracious if it is terrible. But here's what Paul writes to Titus to open his letter. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Heavenly Father, your word holds much, much, much value in our lives. Your divine revelation, Lord, is what has led us and guide us to the place in which we are at right now. It is by your word that we have come to hold fast and tight to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This word that was preached so long ago by the Apostle Paul. And so long ago, even before him. So Lord, this morning, may your word speak to our hearts. May you teach us and guide us and grow us and lead us as a body. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So uh, every time a president leaves office, not every time, but as far back as Ronald Reagan is what I could find, every time a president leaves office, the outgoing president, since Ronald Reagan at least, has left a handwritten note on the resolute desk for the incoming president. You can actually go and find them. Right? Some of them are pretty interesting. If you look at um, Ronald Reagan's, it's a picture. he's got a picture of an elephant with like a whole bunch of turkeys climbing all over it. And he writes, you'll have moments when you want to use this particular stationery, with the elephant with turkeys on it. He says, well, go for it. And he kind of writes this little quip. It's really quaint and nothing too de- in-depth or too detailed. Uh, you find ones from, uh, from George H.W. Bush, to Bill Clinton, when I walked into this office just now, I felt the same sense of wonder and respect I felt four years ago. I know you will feel that too. I wish you great happiness here. I never felt the loneliness some presidents have described. There will be tough times made even more difficult by criticism you may not think is fair. I'm not a very good one to give advice, but just let the critics discourage, don't let the critics discourage you or push you off course. He writes a little more. You can go find them all. There's from Bill Clinton to George W. Bush. There's George W. Bush's uh, up here to Barack Obama. Barack Obama's to Donald Trump. They're all there publicly. And that's kind of what we're walking into with Titus in some extent, except far more existentially more important and more valuable than the President of the United States. We have the Apostle Paul writing a letter to a young pastor who has been entrusted with a church or churches on an island in the Mediterranean. And Paul leaves this letter for them, for him. This is what the church should look like. 
This is what the church should look like. This is a short letter for being and living as the church. Not sure what more is important, what is more important than that for us. In today's age, in any age, in the coming days, how we are to be and live as the church. Zach has been passing these books out over the evening services. We're going to begin a series on that book, and it correlates nicely with what is the church, ecclesiology, what the church is meant to be. This is something we want to take very seriously. Throughout this book, we're going to see various topics. We're going to see various things from Paul. We're going to see a demonstration of the importance of godly doctrine and godly living. The value of those things. Of living soundly according to the doctrine we cling to. I skipped a part. We're going to read and learn and discuss and think about what the leaders of the church are supposed to be and look like. Who they are. We're going to discuss and think through and look at threats to the church. Wolves. False gospels. False teaching. We're going to think through the need for sound doctrine. Why that is so valuable. We're going to think about what it means to live as a Christian in the home. We're going to look at passages in which what it means to live as a Christian amongst the church itself, together, with one another, in relationship to one another. We're going to think about what it means to live as a Christian outside of these walls outside of the relationships we bear here and we bear with our nuclear immediate family. We're going to think about what it means to live as a Christian amongst those who are not Christians. We're going to, of course, look at the reason for which we do all of those things. The reason we have elders of such and such character. The reason we rebuke false teachers and we care for the safety, spiritual safety of the church. The reason we live as moms and dads, as sons and daughters in a Christian home. We're going to look at the reason for all of these things, right? Because without the reason, we're just playing games. We're just acting in charades without the reason for those things. So we're going to look at all of those. To continue with our context, the author here is Paul, verse 1, tells us that. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The same Paul who on the road to Damascus was blinded by his uh, meeting with Christ. The same Paul who slaughtered Christians before his uh, coming to know Christ. The same Paul who we read throughout the book of Acts as going far to far places to take the gospel. The same Paul. This is the Paul who is writing this letter. And this is a side note. This has nothing to do with what I'm about to talk about. But just think of, think of the great grace in Paul. Literally a terrorist. Literally a religious terrorist hunting Christians around the Mediterranean just for fun. Like, this is what he did. 
And so many years later, churches popping up all over the Mediterranean, books still being looked at and studied and examined today by the preservation of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in these books. What grace is that? That's a picture of what this gospel presents to us as well. What grace that we have a letter from Paul and the person who he once was in this great demonstration of God's mercy and grace. That's an aside. Uh, The date, written somewhere around the mid-60s is what many believe. Likely between his first imprisonment in Acts 28 and probably before his death, obviously, right? Um, His second imprisonment that led to his death. And the audience. Well, obviously the audience is Titus. He makes that very clear in verse 4 to Titus, my true child in a common faith. But the audience here is not just Titus. The audience here is also the church. The audience is also to, ch- to the church. What does he say in 1b? He, Paul, an, uh, an apostle, servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of who? For the sake of God's elect. He's writing this letter to Titus, for the sake of Titus, but for the sake of the church. Now, where is this church? This church is on the island of Crete. It's an island south of Greece in the Mediterranean. And uh, what is believed is that Paul and Titus traveled there in their missionary journeys, began a whole bunch of churches, and Paul, being Paul, had to go and continue his work. So he left Titus in Crete to care and raise and nurture these young churches. And so that's where this beautiful letter comes from. And that's why this letter applies to us today. Church in a broken society. Crete was infamous in the ancient Mediterranean for being a complete and utter godless place. Paul is going to comment later. He'll quote in a, later in verse one, in chapter 1 about these Cretans being lazy and liars. That's not just because Paul was being mean. This was a quote from a, a, another guy who was saying this about Crete. This is what the culture of Crete was. It was a culture completely opposed to the gospel. And here we have Paul and Titus showing up in a boat, docking, and then building these churches. Sounds familiar. Does it not? Random guys showing up, sharing the gospel, churches starting in places that are ungodly and unrepentant and have no interest in the godly life. No interest in Jesus Christ. Sounds very familiar. So that's where this letter kind of falls in. This is, this, is, this is where this letter comes from. And when we look at this letter, there's three or four things I want us to look at today. I want us to look at these things. And as a good author does, he kind of summarizes his whole letter in these first four passages. He summarizes the whole thing here in these little short sentences. So here's the first thing I want us to look at today. That this letter is meant to inform us that godliness is living in faith as steered by sound doctrine. Number one, this letter is meant to inform us that godliness is living in faith as steered by sound doctrine. He says this. 
He writes this letter for the sake, 1B, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. For the faith of God's elect, the church, and for their knowledge of the truth. And what Paul says is their faith, their living in faith, and their knowledge of doctrine, their knowledge of truth, accords with godliness. So this letter is meant to show us that. And what we must look at, and I'm getting the cart ahead of the horse here, but these two things cannot exist apart from one another, at least not, and not equal to godliness. Godliness cannot exist apart from a life of faith, a life of faith, and sound doctrine. So living in faith. We just spent a whole lot of time in the book of Hebrews, didn't we? Hebrews chapter 11, which Jeff preached on, goes through all of these Old Testament people and demonstrates how their faith led to the proclamation of the gospel, to godly living. We read of people like Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and the calling of this man out of who knows where, some godless place. And he calls him and says, you're going to have a kid. And your kid's going to be really important. He's going to be the father of, of a lot of people. And he's going to be pretty important. That's great if Abraham's 25. Abraham's not 25. Sarah's not 25. We're really old when this happens. But they lived in faith. They trusted what God had said. They trusted in what he was doing. We talked about Moses in the series, or in Joseph, in the series Jeff just finished. He was thrown into a pit literally left for dead, sold off to some slave people and taken to Egypt. Then his brothers show up years later and we hear Joseph proclaiming his trust in God throughout all of these experiences in prison with Potiphar's wife, with his brothers even before that. All of these things is what sustained Joseph's faith sustained him through all of those things. Faith and trust in the promises that God had beforehand. Moses and the Exodus. All these people, Rahab and Jericho, the, 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 the people who are coming to spy it out. She was a local. And here are coming these spies to try and conquer her town. And goes with it. That's because of her faith and, and what those people told her about God. She trusted in God's promises. And here she is in Hebrews 11. Perfect example of living in faith is who? Is, is Christ himself. He is the exemplar for all of us all the time. What did he come to do? He came, entered this world as an infant, right? We just finished celebrating that. And was Raised to die. He came for one purpose. To claim his people for himself through his death. 
And we see his torment, right? In the garden, before his crucifixion, we see the torment he goes through. Sweating blood, it says. And yet, what does he say in his prayer? My will, but your will be done. And I will, he will take, he will, I will go on this and finish this that, that he was called to do. Literally standing days, minutes, hours before his crucifixion in which nails are pushed into his wrists and pushed into his feet and hung up to not just like hurt, but to asphyxiate to death. What is he? he said, I trust you, Father. I will go forward because I trust your promises. Isaiah 53, right? 700 years before Jesus. He's our exemplar. Living in faith is not just an option, right? Our lives are to be completely and utterly defined by this text. Not by some newspaper you just read. Not by Joe Rogan. Not by Fox News. Our lives are completely and utterly defined by this book. This book. We live in faith because of the divine revelation that Psalm 19 tells us about. That Edward Heinze preached several months ago. Years ago, probably now. I don't even know. That's what defines our life. That's what Paul is calling Titus to raise up and to nurture in the lazy, gluttonous Cretans. Find completely and totally by God's promises and trusting in them. Holy and fully. I sit here and I read these emails from Elin's mother. I read another one. And the faith of this woman, as her five-year-old has faced two brain surgeries and is now entering radiation, has the port placed in and everything, the faith of this woman trusting in the promises of God with her five-year-old child. That's what we're called to do. Job-like struggle. And still trusting. That's what Paul is calling Titus to nurture. This, this, this faith, this Christ-like faith that in the midst of whatever, I will say, not my will, but your will be done. This faith that literally informs every single thing we do. Every decision we make, we take all captives, or all, our, our, all our thoughts to captive to Christ Jesus. This faith that literally informs every step, action, thought, word we take. That's what the Bible calls us to do. Not just to say, hey, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, sweet. Now let's go do whatever. No, it's, called, calling, it's calling us, the Bible is calling us, God is calling us, Paul is calling the Cretans to take every thought captive to Christ and to live in a faith that just seems reckless to people. That's because we have a God who is not reckless and is in complete and utter and total control. So alongside of this sound faith, Paul is very clear that a knowledge of the truth is necessary. He identifies this as a necessity for godliness, a knowledge of the truth. I just finished watching Loki 
on Disney Plus several hours ago, quite literally. Not very long ago. I just finished it. And you hear these conversations throughout this, this, this show. And the whole show, I'm not going to necessarily spoil it for you, but it's a whole show about time and free will and how time and free will and, and, and history go together, to sum it up. And there's a conversation, there's two or three conversations that happen throughout this show in which Mobius, one of the main characters, and also Loki, echoes and vocalizes this postmodern belief that my reality is my reality. And your reality is your reality, and they can conflict with each other. And I would be okay with that phrase if we change the word reality with experience, maybe. But the reality, the reality is, pun not intended, truth stands outside of our existence. It overhangs our existence. It umbrellas our existence. It stands outside of us. We don't determine truth. Right? They have these conversations. One at the, towards the end that says, this is something along the lines of this experience happens and I am feeling this way about it. You've walked through the same experience. You're feeling this way about it. And there's this conflicting understanding of what each person experienced in the same event. Interesting psychological examination maybe. And sure, maybe we do have different views on different things that happen. But the reality is, this word and God's truth stands outside of our experiences. Our experiences don't give definition to truth. Truth gives definition to our experiences. And so here we have Paul saying to Titus and to the Cretans by extension, you must have an awareness of this truth. We this church, the church in America, the church at large, needs to have an awareness of this truth to be godly. We cannot have it any other way. Why we're standing here right now preaching a book that is 2,000 years old. Truth is objective. It is overarching and it stands outside of us. We are not the determiners of it. But we live in a cautionary tale, or we're living in a cautionary tale with this specific topic. I don't need necessarily to sit here and speak to all of you guys about the importance of doctrine. Many of you, all of you, most I know almost all of you, are very aware of the importance of doctrine. But as I said earlier... The problem becomes when that doctrine becomes our God and we exchange that place of Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, for the supremacy of John Calvin and Tulip and infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. When we exchange the place of Jesus Christ with pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, we've got a problem. We've got a problem when that happens. And that is generally the temptation we face, this specific church. That's our problem, right? Our godliness, what we believe is godliness, 
has become just pure head knowledge of infralapsarianism. I'm godly because I can define infralapsarianism. No, you're full of garbage if that's what you're going to walk around telling people because no one cares what infralapsarianism is. Okay? That's the problem, is we have taken that and placed it on the mantelpiece of Jesus Christ. No, no, we need to take that and let it inform our faith and how we live. The five solas, Calvin's tulip, they inform our faith. They don't take his place. They inform us of how to live. We have a big God theology. We just preached on a series of providence and sovereignty because we have faith that he will do and take out and carry his promises through to the end. Just as he did with Joseph, just as he did with Moses, just as he did with Adam and Eve, just as he did with Abraham, just as he did with David, just as he did with Job, just as he did with every single person in the Old Testament. That's what informs our faith. That doctrine helps us to live godly. It doesn't make us godly. If we think so, oh my goodness, don't be that person, please. We live in a cautionary tale. Louisville, the seminary, that is a cautionary tale for us. And this very short half a sentence from Paul. Godliness is living in faith as informed and steered by our doctrine and knowledge of the truth. Doctrine steers us. It's not the engine. Jesus Christ is our engine, but it steers the car for us. Number two, this letter is meant to encourage our pursuit of eternal hope. This letter is meant to encourage our pursuit of eternal hope in our godly living. Paul says, verse 2, Well, let me back it up to verse 1 so it makes sense because it's all broken up here with his commas. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life uh, with which God who never lies promised before the ages began. This letter is meant to encourage our pursuit of eternal hope. What do we live for? What do you live for? Do I live for getting a full-time job with Louisville City and being a full-time soccer coach? Sometimes I wonder. Do you live for success in your workplace? Do you live for the growth and nurturing of your children? Do you live for money? Do you live for fame? Do you live to be the next Matt Chandler, John Piper? None of those things, though all important, though all completely important, are the end hope. Those aren't the eternal prosperity. That's not what we look for in eternity. Our hope, as driven by our faith, as steered by our doctrine, is one far greater in which 
we will no longer have to hear of a five-year-old's cancer diagnosis. One brother sent to me a few days ago. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. That's our eternal hope with us and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither there shall, shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be. Hope that Paul is talking about pushing Titus to nurture in the Cretans. Think of running, right? I've started up my running again. And there are days when it is absolutely terrible. And I'm on mile two and a half. I'm trying to get to 3.1. And I just look and the, there's my street corner. If I get to that street corner, that's 3.1. That's, my, that's where I'm going. My eyes are fixed on that street sign, Carlton Drive, I can get there. Not on every little sidewalk tile that goes by. Paul uses running metaphors for a reason. The New Testament uses race running metaphors for a reason. Because I think what the New Testament is telling us is that if we live with that end in sight, all of those little things in front of us aren't so big of a deal. But in the midst of that 10K, midst of that 5K or half marathon, if you're looking down at every single step you take, you're going to die. You won't make it. Our perspective in Christ is different than outside of Christ. Our perspective in Christ is one that is fixed to the end. Not to every step that we take everything that we go through. And I believe if we are better, God works in us. Fix our vision. Final spot on the kingdom, on Revelation 21, we will be such different people in the steps that we take. Paul is calling Titus and the Cretans to nurture that. Our eternal hope. Why? Because God, who never lies, as we talked about already, promised this. Promised this. Thirdly, this letter 
makes us keenly aware that our great hope is a product of God and His Word. It is a product of God and His Word. You can think of passages like Romans 10 and faith coming from hearing and hearing the preaching of the Word. Just to steal somebody's passage from later in Titus, he, Paul tells us what our hope is. He says these great things, and we'll say them again in a few weeks because it's great enough to say again. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's you. That's me. That's us. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. You didn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. I should just let Paul finish. Not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This letter, this letter makes us keenly aware that you did not make yourself godly. That you did not pull yourself up by your bootstraps and found God on the corner of First and Amistad to quote a pop song. This, this passage, this book, is intent to make us keenly aware of that. Right? This is why we're sitting here right now, is to hear God's word preached we're here to pray God's word, to sing God's word, to preach God's word, and to teach God's word. You're not here to watch me. You're not here to watch Jeff. You're never here to watch us. If that is why you're here, let's talk. Because we're messed up too. And we're here just because God's word is here. Why we're here on Sundays to hear God's word. Oh, I forgot to say the, read the passage in my excitement. This is what Paul says in verse three, talking about his work. He says this, and at the proper time, manifested in his word, or by his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command. Of God our Savior. Paul, writing this letter to Titus, speaking to the church in Crete, telling them that their godliness comes from their faith in Him and their awareness of His goodness and His truth. And it, it, their godliness is chasing after this hope of eternal life. And their godliness has come about because of God Himself. Through this great preaching of his great word. It is a work of the Holy Spirit implanting itself, himself, inside of you. And from that heart of rock and stone and death, all of a sudden a little sprout pops up. 
And it's from that great sprout that the Holy Spirit transforms us and takes us to the precipice, to the foot of the cross, to look at our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to be called to Him. Fall down before Him. We see that in Psalm 19. That's what Psalm 19 tells us about. The earth, creation, speaks His name. His word reveals Jesus Christ. His word made manifest. His word is Jesus Christ in the flesh. Psalm 19. Hebrews 1, right? We read that the other day. Well, not years ago at this point. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. By his son. We see, as we've said so many times, as we said in Sunday school, as we said throughout Hebrews, as we've said throughout the Providence series, all of history is moving towards Christ. And all of history still is moving towards his coming back. Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the patriarchs, the preservation of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the preservation of Joseph in Egypt, Moses in the Exodus leaving Egypt, Judges and Ruth and David, the words of Isaiah and the prophets, the minor, the major prophets, the destruction of the kingdom, Esther, the preservation of the Jews with Esther, the return to Israel with Nehemiah and Ezra. What were all of those things doing? They were preserving the line by which Christ was going to come. All of history was coming towards him and moving towards him. And then boom, the incarnation that we've just celebrated for the last month. Here he is in the flesh. He dies. Not work that you have once started that is not work that you have faithfully tarried and toiled to find that is work that was done on your behalf by the triune God through his word where are you where are you now What is your godliness stemming from? Because I will tell you, if it's not coming from a life defined by faith as steered by doctrine in pursuit of the kingdom, your godliness is false and fake and needs examining. Your hope is only spurred on by God. It is only carried out by God in his grace and in his mercy. And that is what defines a godly individual. The church is to be filled with godly individuals. Church. People. Each individuals yet collectively together living in faith. Really living in faith, being steered by God's word in truth, in pursuit of his residence with us. Heavenly Father, 
your mercy and grace is sufficient. Your mercy and grace is the only. Apart from that, apart from what you have done for us, there is nothing. So let us, as a people collected together, covenanted with one another, binding together, live out our lives in faith. Let us live out our lives with the realization and understanding that you are right there. And let us chase after the prize of your presence like a marathon runner getting to mile 26. If that takes crawling and vomiting on the way, let us do it. For you are worthy. You are worth it. In Christ's name.